This edition of the Ed Surge On Air podcast is brought to you by Dreambox Learning. Dreambox Learning is an adaptive online K-8 math program designed to complement classroom instruction and proven to positively impact student outcomes. Just go to www.dreambox.com slash edsurge for more information. Students at the University of Central Florida are busy, and it's not always with classes. They have sports to play, student organizations to run, even parties to go to, just like most students anywhere. The kind of surprising solution for many students at UCF is to take some of their courses online to keep that class schedule as flexible as possible. It's always seemed strange to me that students living on a campus would choose to take courses online. After all, the original promise of teaching on the internet was to reach students who couldn't easily get to a campus. But like many universities, Central Florida has figured out that students often prefer to take at least some classes online, and it doesn't mean they stay holed up in their rooms. Hello and welcome to the Ed Surge On Air podcast. I'm Jeff Young. This week, I talked with Dale Whitaker, who's the provost at the University of Central Florida. I caught up with him at this year's South by Southwest EDU conference in Austin just after he gave a lightning talk in a session hosted by EdSurge. I'll link to that talk on the show page. He's currently leading another evolution of online teaching at UCF as the institution moves into adaptive learning. And they hope that the future of campus learning is for students to team up and teach each other as they work through online exercises in the campus coffee shop. We'll have the conversation right after this. Looking for a way to get students excited about learning math and help boost their performance? The Dreambox Learning K-8 online math program personalizes learning for every student while empowering educators to raise student achievement. Its adaptive learning technology analyzes how a student is handling math problems and keeps them in an optimal learning zone by providing each lesson at the right level of difficulty. Students will develop new strategies to ensure deep understanding of key concepts, to develop fluency with important skills, and to cultivate critical thinking. If your school or district needs a math solution that has been proven to enhance math learning in measurable ways, Dreambox Learning is your answer. Just go to www.dreambox.com slash edsurge for more information. That URL once more, www.dreambox.com slash edsurge. All right, I'm sitting here with Dale Whitaker, who is the provost and executive vice president at the University of Central Florida. Thanks for being here. It's great to be here. I wanted to talk about online learning, and I wanted to start out with the idea of how I understand you're using it, which is, which was sort of surprising to me, which is that you have a lot of your online learners, they're otherwise traditional students, but they take some online classes. Can you talk about how you've made this a thing where even kind of your regular students that are living there take online classes? Yeah, absolutely. Um, our online students are more digital than they are distance. Hmm. And what that really means is, to your point, um, we have students that are taking all online courses, all face-to-face courses, some mix of the two. Most of them are taking some mix of the two at any time in a semester. But these students are also using our rec center. They're participating in student government. They're part of the Greek organization. They're coming to football games. They're um, talking to their uh, professors. So the majority of our students live uh, and live either on campus or right around campus. Because, I mean, if I understand this correctly, University of Central Florida, one of the things that you figured out is like you might be able to teach more students 
but you need one of the things that that is a, a block to that is of, of offering more classes or having more sections is classroom space, yeah. right? Just physically having a, yeah. a room. Here we had to, you know, I was just joking with you. We had to find a space to record here in Austin to find a little room. It's like the same issue for you, right? You just if you yeah. don't have a classroom available, you can't offer another section, even if you have a a faculty or some other way to scale it. So is you know, that what online helps you solve? Yeah, for us, for the institution, that's exactly what it helps us solve. In fact, when we started this, we started it because students couldn't get the classes they needed to graduate on time. And I know other institutions are having the same problem. Now what we find ourselves uh, able to do is uh, serve so many more students, in fact, 20,000 more students in any given semester, then we have the physical facilities to support. 20,000 more. Yeah. And how many students, yeah. you know, officially at We have 64,000 students. So that's your total yeah. student population. The other thing is uh, our students go year-round. So, you know, we're an urban institution. These are students that uh, live and work around the campus. Uh, but we had 39,000 students last summer. And we wouldn't have had 39,000 students last summer if they didn't have online options. Hmm. Though, what's in it for the students? So I see this... So that's also a cost savings to you because you don't have to yeah. put up a new building. That's right. So that's good for you, but what about for the students? All the growth in our online courses has been based on student demand. So they can register for a class face-to-face -face or online. And when they register online, uh, our faculty members who teach the same face-to-face -face class teach it online. So the, so you the, basically decide to offer that new section when there's enough people that want it. That's exactly right. So what uh, I guess where I'm going with that is from the student's perspective, what they tell us is they want that flexibility. They want the flexibility, especially time, be able to take it when they can fit it into their lives, but also space or place. So they may drive out to the campus if they work downtown three days a week and take face-to-face -face classes and then fill up their schedule with online courses so they can work downtown on Tuesdays and Thursdays, let's say. And they are working. I mean, that's a, your student population... You, you guys know a lot about your demographics, and it's not just this 20-year-old residential only. Yeah, that's right. Uh, half of our students, 48% of our students, work 20 or more hours a week. Uh-huh. Wow. Um, half of our students are transfer students, so they've gotten an associate's degree before they've come to us. And just to get back to this, so it's a convenience yeah. factor, even yeah. though they're there. I, when, now, I know that you're not the only institution that kind of sees a little bit of that, mm -hmm. you know, in-person, as you say, more more digital than distance yeah. in the students. But do you ever have this feeling of, like, that they're missing out because, you know, it seems like they're doing all this work to get to the campus and be there for all the other things you mentioned, like, you know, maybe mm -hmm. being involved with a sports team or, or going to the library, but they're not – but just because it's a little more convenient, are they missing something by, by – by their choice to, to be, even though it's more convenient, but to be in an online classroom instead? Um, let me answer that in terms of learning and then in terms of the social aspect. So in terms of learning, they're not. So what we know is that they're actually doing better in the online courses than they are in the face-to-face. -face. And this comes back to 20 years of faculty development, where basically we know that uh, if a professor teaches an online course, they have to go through 80 hours of training. So you require learn. that they learn how to teach? Exactly. Online? And frankly, we don't require that of the face-to-face. -face. So we have a very high quality standard for the online courses. So to, if you were to ask the question, do they t uh, learn as well? And as a chief learning officer, am I confident in that? I'm absolutely confident in that. Let me talk about the social aspect. So I think one of the best stories is our student body president, when they're president, always 
takes only online courses. And what it does is it allows them to be much more engaged. They sit on the board of trustees. They go to, to they run their governance. They hmm. uh, uh, are often called out to present to student groups. Uh, we see the same thing with students that are, uh, for example, working with Siemens in our research park. Um, they can take a half day of work, eight to noon, and they can stay engaged on campus and then in their own time get their coursework worked out during that semester. So they're not missing out. They're just juggling it a little bit of online, a little bit of in-person. I actually think they're using it to stay engaged. Hmm. The other thing this all calls to mind is that I think a lot of the talk about digital innovation really focuses on class, like mm-hmm. courses. Uh-huh. Yeah. But you're mentioning all these extracurriculars that mm-hmm. are maybe the most exciting things to some students, frankly, probably. So is that part of it is to make it a mix? I, I think that's an interesting anecdote about the student government president. Yeah, to be, you know, really to be frank, um, we were driven to do this because we didn't have the money to build the buildings because the students wanted to um, graduate on time. And our core mission is to raise the uh, educational attainment of our community. So we weren't going to to throttle back on the students that we admitted. We were going to continue to grow, even though we didn't necessarily have the resources to build buildings. Yeah, so your question was, uh, do students miss something by not sitting in a course? And, you know, this is cliche, but I love the cliche, and that is that the uh, best or the worst version of distance education is sitting in the back of a 500-seat lecture hall and wishing you could ask a question. Um, (laughs) So... uh, um, Here's another piece of evidence that we have. We learned from the Gallup, the Purdue Gallup study, which we just got the data back on, that one of the most important experiences a student has is a long and deep relationship with a faculty member, especially if it's around uh, an area of their own interest. So what we'd like to do is figure out how 50,000 students can have significant, sustained experiences with a mentor in deep, deep learning. It may be undergraduate research, it may be service learning, intercultural learning, international learning. And the only way we're going to do that is if we take those things that are more um, transactional off the faculty members' plates and put more things that are deep and engaging uh, on their plates and give them the time to do that with individual students. So in a sense, I think we got here by accident, but where we have come uh, might be pretty enlightening. In an online setting, there's nothing stopping other institutions from trying to compete with you and maybe even on price. And, you know, one example that seems to be out there a lot is, is Arizona State University, but there are others as well um, with, all, with fully online programs. And they have one that's like for freshmen only. And so you could say, saying, do you, do you worry, like how much do you worry about other programs kind of taking this idea of, of lower cost to offer online education, even if it's good, and taking away your students? Uh, I don't worry about it at all. Because our core mission is that people become educated in our community and um, and at a cost that they can afford. Because as you know, students who are born into a family in the lowest income quartile in the United States, only 10% of those will get a degree, Hmm. a four-year degree. Hmm. So we have almost no potential in uh, the high-income sector, all of our human potential is in that unrealized sector. So our whole focus is um, making sure that people in the community can become more educated because it will shift the economic opportunities of our entire community. And bottom line is if Arizona State or uh, 
community partners like Rollins or other institutions can help with that, we're all for it. But we're going to be just as competitive in Phoenix as they are in Orlando. And for me, that's what drives that's what drives innovation. I, I wanted to ask as well about um, uh, one thing that I know has been, I think some of this predates your time even being at UCF, but um, there's a lot of large classes, large lecture classes. You mentioned mm-hmm. the kind of 500 seat auditorium and, yeah. and that's kind of distance education. But as I recall, don't you have some in-person classes where people can kind of tune in from extra rooms or that they're very yeah. largely scaled? Um that, how how does that go into this? How does what you're learning in online and, and play into some of the other things you're trying on campus to to make up for the, the shortage of classroom space sometimes? Yeah. Um, well, first of all, those large lecture capture classes, at the start of the semester, we schedule those into large lecture halls and maybe 20% of the students show up. The other 80% watch online and then it goes down to about 10%. Um, and you're okay with that. That's the design. We've been okay with that up until now. So what we're doing now, we've just prototyped uh, over the this past semester 10 adaptive learning classes that we think have a really good shot, depending on the subject matter, at replacing lecture capture. So we're moving toward uh, what we're trying to do is um, increase the quality while maintaining the scale. Also, most of those happen, or many of those happen in our College of Business, and our College of Business Dean has been very aggressive on building other interactions uh, for those students that are required interactions on campus with industry leaders and with each other. So what he's trying to do is balance the content learned in the lecture capture with the face-to-face interactions that the best residential university can offer. That's so interesting. And so can you say a little bit more about how the adaptive works? Like, what's it like from a student's perspective? Oh, Yeah. Um, adaptive learning basically is an individualized track through a uh, body of knowledge. And so from a student's perspective, if they're, um, you know, starting the course with the class with a lot of background, um, they may see no back, uh, they may see no remediation. They may move very quickly through the course. They may finish the uh, they may master the course in a matter of five, six, seven weeks. And it and looks to them like an online on. course? It would look like an online course, yes, exactly. Um, another student may, uh, and it's assessed in real time. So you know what you know as a student when you know it. Hmm. Um, other students, myself would say, might be struggling with a concept. And in an, in an adaptive learning platform, uh, the system would take you back to the f- fundamentals that are really the foundation for understanding that concept and make sure that you've worked through that and you understand that and then bring you back to the concept and try to help you move forward. So for some people, there may be places where um, it takes them three weeks to learn a week's worth of material and two days to learn four weeks worth of material, just depending on their own individual uh, mastery. Hmm. And so, but it, but it is uh, it is outside the classroom, much like watching a lecture capture. It's just of higher quality, we believe, at least for certain areas. So it's it's like you said. Are you so then you're you're saying you're trying to move away from those giant rooms with overflow? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we we really don't do much of that anymore. That was in the early years, it, uh, and that was because many of the students showed up, and they don't anymore. Wow. So they realize you know five of them could be sitting like you and I are at this coffee table. And uh, watching watching the lecture capture, discussing it, working on the homeworks. Wow! So you've uh, embraced the what the behaviors of the students were. Absolutely, we know students. You know, 
again, our students are more digital than distance. These students are not in their pajamas in their dorm room playing video games and learning online. They're in our coffee shops, they're in our libraries, they're in our learning spaces, um, and they're working together in many cases. Huh. In fact, that's for us the next evolution is facilitating that, that group work in an intelligent way, assuming people learn well by being in physical and human contact with each other. Facilitating it for the classes, for the people yes. in these on the adaptive yeah, classes. Exactly. If adaptive learning is learning my way, then what we're building is learning my way together. So what we know is active and collaborative learning works. Active learning means practice. It means doing it. Collaborative work learning means doing it with someone else that's learning the same thing at the same time that you are. And, and so there is deep learning that happens when uh, people, two naive learners, learn together. Mm. There's teaching that happens. There's explanation. There's understanding that an expert often can't articulate because they've compiled the knowledge, right? So what we've built, what we are building, is a platform that basically says, hey, you're a little bit ahead of me. Uh, you might know this subject, uh, how, and you've been given some rankings by some other students that you can not only, you not only know it, you can teach it. And so if you're advertising, I may come to you and say, hey, can you help me on this? And if you help me, I may rank you up. And so we're creating something called Learning Marketplace that allows you to move up as your expertise in knowing and teaching increases all the way up to a, a professor level. And that's interesting. How soon is this going to be available to students? We plan to prototype it in the fall. And do you know anyone else doing that approach or is this a... No, as far as we know, it's a unique approach and we'll let you know in a year how it worked. (laughs) Yeah, so it's kind of like a badging thing. You can be some sort of, you know, like helper ninja kind of thing or how does it work? Why would someone want to help someone else? Because it would benefit them in their own learning. So if one of the promises of adaptive learning is the ability to really measure learning gains. And there's very few other places we can do that hmm. in an in, in a, in a, uh, unbiased way. So if your objective is to learn more and maybe learn more faster, then if you know that by helping me, you learn better and you learn more and you see that in your own uh, personal feedback, then there's a value to you to do that. I'm really interested in long-term retention and generalization of the knowledge also, because we have uh, typically superficial measures of learning, like, can you tell me what I just said? Not in two years, can you show me that you you learned how to apply this in a very unique situation? Sure. <laughs> so you want to see that kind of active learning, I guess, and active teaching, learning through teaching. Yeah, uh, and that's collaborative learning. That's what happens in face-to-face collaborative learning zones all over the country. Mm. What we want to do is facilitate it in informal spaces. Hmm. And on the students' time, which, again, they are demanding. And it us. might be wherever they are. It it's might be in the are. coffee shop. It's wherever they are. Yeah, it's in the breezeway. It's under the palm tree. It's in their hammocks. You're making me want to go. <laughs> now, you grew up around here, right, near Austin. I did. I did. And up on you the north have, side. I, I just wanted to ask you a little bit about your background. So there was a time yeah. you were, um, uh, as I understand it, you were driving a semi-truck for your family business yeah. in a kind of agricultural setting. Yep. And at the same time, working for Texas Instruments in Austin. And so these are yeah. two two things that you don't always think of together. So how is that kind of upbringing, this kind of mix of rural and, and, and tech, kind yeah. of shaped your thoughts on education, do you think? Um, I learned early on that persistence 
paid off, even in the simplest things, you know, uh, can, keeping working at it. And uh, when things got tough, just, you know, kind of keep plugging at it. I think that was the agricultural background. Um, the work I did with Texas Instruments was artificial intelligence, and this was in the mid-'80s, in the very early years of machine learning and sure. natural language understanding. And TI was a big and, player back and then. And TI was a big player back then. We were actually creating an uh, AI machine. Wow. Um, uh, and that was the time that, that I was doing both was between two stints at graduate school, a master's and a Ph.D. The family business started when I was in about the seventh grade. So uh, when we, it was a way to make money. It was a way to do something that was interesting. Um, what I, I think what I learned from that is that um, academia can be so far behind what is technologically beneficial and, and capacity, uh, mainly because we're so distributed, entrepreneurial, and uh, um, well, maybe there's some elitism there or, or self-appreciation uh, for the direct influence on students. Hmm. So it's a little bit of what makes higher ed what it is. There's some good and some bad, but you're saying with the technology, yeah. there was a hesitancy to apply new things. Yeah, I think, uh, and often it comes from the technology, just like learning, uh, a professor in institutions that I've been in, Research One institutions, knows their stuff. They often don't know how to teach, and they often, unless their area happens to be technology, they may or may not understand the impact of the role on technology, on scaling, and on scaling quality. So um, it, you, you have to learn as a professor to come to trust the technology people around you and to accept their support. And now we're having to uh, learn as a professor to trust the instructional designers, development developers, cognitive scientists around how do people learn best. Is there anything that kind of worries you as you tr you know move to this adaptive learning? It seems like that that gives you pause to this whole strategy that where that might maybe not go as well as you'd hope. But I think the the piece that we have to watch and uh, be deliberate about is that we don't over-intermediate. Uh, so it would be awfully easy for someone to tell me what classes I could be most successful in, mm. uh, or even maybe what career I could be most successful in. Or Based present, on data. Yeah, or present material to me in the way that I, the, the one way that I best learn. And the question is, what's lost by doing that? You know, what about the other modalities of learning that uh, I could have exercised? And maybe discovered that I had never practiced, or maybe push the student to, yeah. to try something new, right? Yeah. Or expand it's, their it's palate. The whole idea, yeah, expand the palate, the, the opportunity for discovery. The, it's kind of the difference between a search engine and browsing. You know, uh, I think that's the potential danger when we individualize based on machine learning. Is that? Could you say more about that difference between the search engine and browsing? Yeah. So a search engine basically gives you what you asked for. Right. And browsing, you're off looking for it, and you might find all kinds of interesting little tidbits that you weren't looking for. In fact, you usually do. And you usually do. And there's so much learning that happens there. There's so much expansion that happens there. And I think that might be the, the piece we have to watch very carefully on adaptive learning. Great. Well, hey, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. I appreciate it. You're welcome. I enjoyed it. This has been the Itzer John Air Podcast. If you don't already, subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app, and please send suggestions or ideas for future guests to feedback at edsurge.com.
This episode was edited and produced by me, Jeff Young. We'll be back next week with more conversations about the future of education. Thanks for listening.